and people all across the business world feel this. You know, you make a presentation, some people liked it, some people didn't. You know, you give a speech, some people liked it, some people didn't. You teach a class, it kind of works with some of the students, kind of doesn't with others. With coding, there is an absolute finality that the damn thing is working, and it feels great. Welcome to Science for the People. I'm Rochelle Saunders. Tech, computer, code, security vulnerabilities, hacking elections, it's been in the news for a while, and even if you're not following these conversations specifically, it seems to me like everyone must be aware they're happening and that our world has changed dramatically in a pretty short period of time because of code, computers, and the internet. We hear about that change, but what about the subculture of tech and coders that brought it about? Who are these people who, in the words of our guest today, are among the most quietly influential people on the planet? Today, we're digging into this topic with Clive Thompson, an author, a columnist for Wired, and a contributing writer for the New York Times Magazine. His latest book is Coders, The Making of a New Tribe and the Remaking of the World, and he has spent no small amount of time examining coding culture and history. Clive, welcome to Science for the People. It's good to be here. So cards on the table for both you, Clive, and our listeners. This book is about a culture I personally am steeped in every day. I work in tech. Uh, I work in tech. I've been a developer for over a decade, which is to say it turns out this is kind of sort of a little bit of book about me, which, <laughs> which I very much enjoyed reading and got a lot out of probably in different ways than the average reader would who is reading about a different kind of other group rather than reading about themselves. And that leads me to ask, who was the target audience of this book? Was it lay people or was it people like me, people in tech? It was both. Um, my goal was, uh, I suppose, first and foremost, for the people who are outside of tech, but who were aware that software is, you know, increasingly a huge part of everyday life. Um, you know, it determines the way that they get their news and the way that they, um, you know, that they shop the way that they understand the world, the way they communicate with other people. They're sort of, you know, they're sort of aware, you know, as Mark Anderson sort of, you know, half jokingly said that software is eating the world, but they don't really know anything about how software is made, who makes it, or what are the priorities of those people, right? You know, so what are the, what are the, the sort of um, internal worldview of the engineers of all the software that is being visited upon the rest of us? So the book was sort of for them, uh, but it turns out that, I also sort of enjoyed being able to capture the psychology and the motivations and the blind spots of of coders well enough that it would be interesting for developers themselves. You know, there was sort of a, a fun challenge to serve both those audiences. And um, what I've heard from a lot of developers is that uh, th there simply isn't a lot out there, you know, that sort of tries to explore this. So they've they've been sort of buying it as like holiday gifts for their for their parents or their or their children or their partners to like sort of say here's here's a here's a book to help understand who I am basically so you you open this book talking about the experience of uh, one of the developers who worked on the original Facebook newsfeed feature, which of course we all know uh, and love slash hate both mm. in its Facebook incarnation and in the way this algorithmic feed of the online social world has has really made its way out to uh, lots of other platforms that many of us use every day. So why did you want to start here? I mean, what about this bit mm. of internet and Facebook history kind of called to you as a starting point? Well, it's because I uh, I would argue that the Facebook news feed is the single most consequential software update of the last 20 years, basically. Um, it has 
had more influence than just about any other piece of software, consumer software aimed at the mass audience. Um, because newsfeed has completely changed the way that m a lot of people on the planet, billions of people, understand the world around them, uh, learn about the world around them, uh, learn about news, share it. Um, it's become the sort of the um, you know sort of the the attention span of huge chunks of many different societies and the algorithms that they use to show people stuff that's out there to not show them things to suppress things that has had a huge influence on how people understand the world. So I, I had always sort of thought when I really began the book uh, that I really wanted to, at some point in time, talk about the newsfeed. And the more I looked at it, the more I was like, let's just begin with what I consider to be one of the most significant pieces of software, maybe the most significant piece of software of the last 20 years. What's interesting about this moment um, is it's also kind of broadly revealing about human culture and where we are now. There was a massive backlash, which you get into, against the idea of everyone being able to to immediately see everything you changed or posted or did on Facebook uh, right away, that kind of like, don't creep on me quality. But also what's interesting is as people used it, um, I think they loved and still do love the way we can see all that information about others as if we were in a room with them watching them go about their life. It's, it's that paradox of no one wants to be creeped on, but everyone kind of likes to creep. <laughs> that's a great way of putting it. Um, I, I think that's exactly right. I mean, there was, um, uh, when, you, when, you, when you hear from the engineers who were involved with making the newsfeed and watching, uh, watching them watch the reaction, the, the shocked reaction of their, of their audience, um, you, re you realize at first, one lesson that comes out of that is that the people who are um, designing the software often don't entirely understand what the impact of the software is going to be. You know, they've got their head down trying to solve this kind of cool problem. They have an idea. It's going to do, it's going to do X, Y, and Z. They don't know that it's also going to do L, M, and Q. Right. Um, and so that's kind of a, that's kind of a revealing moment there that is, is fractal throughout, you know, the entire book and throughout our, uh, a way to understand what are some of the blind spots of software engineers? Um, but then you also sort of see that like software has modern software that, that of the sort that um, affects the way we communicate and the way that we um, talk to other people and, and hear from them. That has a, a, a really, um, God, I hate the word disruption, but I'm going to say a disruptive effect on our patterns of everyday life. And so it activates our, our sense of anxiety because things are changing. Um, but often there's, there's some nugget of something cool in there that we kind of enjoyed. It's like a new ability. And it becomes really impossible to detangle those two things. Um, the sort of fun and pleasure and emotional and cultural and spiritual value that comes from these cool new powers, this ability to sort of tap like ESP into what people that you know are thinking about the newsfeed. Like that's the great stuff. And then there's the the not so great stuff, which is like the sort of TMI. Like there's just this nonstop flood of people talking about things and uh, the ability for malign forces to hijack that, that algorithm, you know, for political purposes, for ideological purposes, those two things the really good stuff and the really bad stuff are just completely blended together. Yeah. I mean, as much as I think many of us, including many of us in the tech industry, dislike the word disruption. And to be fair, a lot of people really like that word. There is something that is kind of right about what that word captures, that idea that it can be a very unpleasant experience. There can be a lot of pushback, but also sometimes that 
there's either that nugget of good in there or nugget of attraction or interest or nugget of change that is valuable. It's it's not an inherently negative word, but it is an inherently uncomfortable word. Well, I think you're, you're right. It's, it, it's it's uh it's not inherently negative it it has the problem with it the way it's wielded in silicon valley is that um they they generally only focus on the sort of positive side because it's financially valuable to them like when they disrupt something they are uh, introducing a a new way of doing things that will accrue money and value to them they are breaking apart an existing structure a social structure a um a business model a civic model um and they're going to make money off it and so, you know, I, I think that the, the unease I've had with that word, and I think some people have with that word, is that it's sort of, you know, gormless, guileless, uh, all sunny version with it looking at some of the um, sort of complex second order effects that come from that come from software that, that messes with the civic sphere, uh, as in this case, um, Newsfeed did. One of the other kind of cultural touchstones, I think, of the tech culture as it is today, uh, very similar to the idea of disruption, is the concept of move fast and break things, which I would also <laughs> love to talk about, because I think it's all kind of mixed together. Yeah, yeah, that that was – so move fast and break things was Mark Zuckerberg's sort of informal slogan for the early days of Facebook. Um, and uh, everyone very much internalized this idea. And what they meant by that was that um, – when they had an idea for a new uh, a, a new feature on Facebook, like maybe, hey, let's let people post photos or let's let them, you know, send this little signal of poke at each other or let's let them have groups or let's let them have a news feed. You know, the idea was don't overthink it. If you have the idea and you think it's going to work, just try it out and and move really quickly, because if you're the first person to do it then everyone will flock to you and you'll be like a billionaire really quickly. And so that's the whole, and, and break things is literally the idea that, you know, we are going to have those negative reactions. We are going to break business models. We're going to break civic models. We're going to break social models and we're going to make something new and we're not going to worry, or we're going to even like, you know, take pleasure in <laughs> the, the wreckage. Right. And, and there, and there's an element of that that is actually, um, that, that I, I sympathize with and I think is actually valuable. Like, it's almost like the artistic impulse, right? You know, like artists are like, are frequently, I don't know if they're moving fast, but they're certainly breaking things, you know, like mm -hmm. they are breaking conventions. They're breaking the way we perceive the world. They're breaking our comfort zone. They are telling us things we don't want to hear. That, that sort of impulse is, um, is I think very much there, that same type of thing in software. Like, oh my God, we could do this exciting new thing and we know we're going to screw things up, but let's just do it anyway. Um, and that's a very old idea in the software world. In fact, one of the one of the if you if you've ever heard that phrase, um, it's better to ask it's better to ask forgiveness than to ask permission, mm -hmm. right? That actually comes from a from a software engineer. That comes from um, a Grace Hopper, uh, one of the famous titans of early software. And she was she really had that attitude. She was like these you know these these you know bureaucrats in the Navy where I work. They're just they're not letting us do the cool stuff. So she would tell her engineers just do it. In, and you know, you know, we'll we'll ask we'll ask forgiveness later when the whole thing is up and working. Basically, she really had, even though she was a you know very looked very prim and proper, she was always walking around literally in her navy uniform. She was just she just was a wrecking ball uh, um, when it came to innovating new things. So that that idea you, you find it very frequently, very deep in the soil of um, of, of software engineering. What's interesting as well is it can mean so many different things in different contexts. Quite often, it just means you know 
put the change into the world. And if you break something else in the application, we'll just fix it. Um, and quite often, that's what it, it sort of means. But also, like you say, it's increasingly around disruption. It's increasingly around breaking things beyond an application. Um, right. and sometimes I think as well, and I think it, your book very clearly illustrates that perhaps in the past, we've had a bit of a myopic view of what we're breaking and what we can and can't roll back. Mm -hmm. Right. Exactly. Because like it, it, purely in the world of software, if you quote unquote break something, you can fix it with the next software update. Right. So like, you know, you, 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 you create a new update to your software, you say you allow comments and then, and suddenly people discover the comments are not formatted correctly or they're in the wrong order. And so you've kind of broken it, but you, you know, the next update, you can fix that. And so you're in fact, actually software, the thing that I think is sort of fascinating and, and weird about software is that it's it's a product that's never really done. You know, you build a building and the building is done. You have to maintain it. That building will age, but the building itself will not suddenly develop forty new floors. Um, you buy a you design a car. You build the car. You sell the car. The car, you know, you know, will again need maintenance. It will it will change in age, but it will not suddenly develop the ability to fly. Um, software very frequently these days because it's delivered online. They're constantly introducing new things and breaking them and fixing it. And so that culture of, you know, breaking and fixing and breaking and fixing is, is sort of almost built into the, the, the psychology and even spirituality of software because everything's always broken. You're always fixing it. And so the problem I think that started to occur to people in the last, say, 10 years as software has really moved into the center of many aspects of economic and civic and cultural life is that when you when you break something in the world of civics or economics it's not as easy to fix it with an update you know like uber came along and very rapidly you know and very quickly you know quote unquote broke the system that had kicked around for decades and was was a mess and imperfect in all sorts of ways uh of hailing cabs and allowing cabs to exist on the cities and they broke that and you and you can't just you can no longer just fix that with an update, right? You know, like that's when you start when you, when you start dealing with the real world, the um the you know software patches are not so easy. Yeah, I mean, and there are also as we incorporate computing into more and more of our infrastructure, um, there's also some life and limb impacts that are impossible to roll back. As an example, it's not possible to roll back the changes on the Boeing seven three sevens. Oh my goodness, yeah, right. Mm -hmm. Like, there's a lot of of changes around um, industrial tech that is moving in the cloud and online, and that stuff because it's it's activating power, it's moving big robotic bits and pieces. Um, it it has a different kind of impact than rolling an update to your content management system. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. I mean, like the the I mean that that Max Eight thing. What what a mess! Eh? Mm -hmm. I mean, like that, that's a that's a classic example of um of moving fast in an area where you really don't want to move fast, right? I mean, um, and, and you know the funny thing is, of course, there are all sorts of models for the development of software that is you know more thoughtful and allows for you to do really cool things and really new things, but proceed with just a, you know, a little more, <laughs> a little more um, awareness and caution as you go. You know, I mean, certainly, certainly NASA is a fantastic example mm -hmm. of brilliant software engineering that has to work right. You know, you're, you're sending things off into space. You cannot so easily fix it. You kind of got to get it right. Or if it's going to fail, it's got to fail in a very graceful way. Mm -hmm. And so those software engineers are just like, to me, like, some of the best on the planet. I almost wish I could have put more of them in the book. I did talk to some of them, but I was sort of focused on trying to capture 
the world of software that everyday people actually live in. But there's all these, you know, this would almost be an interesting separate story for me to write now that I think about it, like looking at these worlds where software development is done with um, almost that kind of attitude of um, multi-generational forestry, you know, mm -hmm. where it's like, you know, we have to, what we're doing now is going to, is going to redound upon us 50 and 100 and 300 and a million years from now. So let's make our decisions intelligently and mm -hmm. thinking forward. And there are people that make software that way. And I think that's actually kind of cool to look at that culture. And also a hidden culture, I would expect, because so much software now is the sort of move fast version of it. Yeah, exactly. I mean, uh, that stuff is more like, well, it's in, it's in areas that either you don't interact with directly like NASA or you don't really see, maybe it's, it's far down um, buried in the seedbed of the software. Like, you know, um, a lot of financial institutions, they have these databases that are um, 50 years old and they can't, they can never really turn them off because <laughs> they're running 24 seven. And so they're still running that software from 50 years ago, which was often written in a language called COBOL. And, COBOL is universally derided as this horrible language. Um, it, it, uh, it's very unsafe to use for a bunch of reasons. Um, uh, one of the, one of the main things is that, you know, you can, you can very, very easily, you know, in, in modern software, they will, they will restrict what they call the scope of, of a piece of information, a variable. They won't say that if you, if, if this variable is being changed, you've got 10,000 lines of code, each of those, that code is actually broken up into little safe chunks. So each of them can't sort of infect the other one with something stupid. Uh, and COBOL is just like those 10,000 lines, you know, <laughs> any change in one little place could cascade through the entire thing. So it's actually sort of a mess, but they have to keep on using it. And, um, and so there's a lot of these engineers sort of kicking around doing this very careful patient work. Like you don't, when you change your COBOL code, you sort of stare at it for like six months to change like one line <laughs> because you don't know what's going to happen. So they're, they really are patient engineers. It's quite, it's quite fun to talk to those folks. I definitely want to talk more about the overall culture of coders. Um, sure. but I think to start with, it probably makes more sense to all, to talk about what the job of writing code actually is and what an individual who is a program tends to be like, because I mm -hmm. think that also helps explain some of the broader culture. And I think you did sure. a really great job of doing that in your book. Mm -hmm. So can you talk a little bit about what the job of a programmer is and um, the kind of popular representation or popular myth of what that is versus is the reality. Right, sure. So the popular myth, let's begin there, you know, would come from maybe watching a TV show or a movie where you see this, this coder who works totally alone and is a genius and just sits down at the keyboard and types at frantic speed and this code sort of pours out. And, and you know, in, in one evening, they sort of make this amazing app or this, or they hack into a system where they do something remarkable. They're always completely alone. They're typing really fast. And it's all happening really rapidly. And essentially, none of those things are remotely true in the world of software. Um, the first one off is that they don't often work uh, alone anymore. I mean, definitely, you know, for smaller projects you do. I mean, I write software for myself that I write completely alone uh, by myself because that's it's just it only has to be used by an audience of one person. But if software is being made, you know, at scale for a lot of people, there's going to be three or four or 20 or a hundred or a few thousand people collaborating on that software. So they spend a lot of time, as one said to me, they spend a lot of time talking. You know, I was at Dropbox and I was hanging out with their lead engineer for a new product. And we were, we were next to like this big whiteboard that was just filled with like stuff that they'd written. And he's like, he's like, this is the programming actually. This is, this is what the programming is. It's us sitting here and talking for weeks 
about what the new feature we're going to introduce is supposed to do. Before we write a single line of code, we have to sort of figure out what it is. So there's a huge amount of mental architecture and social communication. Um, so that's why this idea of the lone genius, it's, you know, it's not, it's not, it's not never true. A lot of startups are maybe done by one person, but a lot of the really big advanced software you're using is done by a lot of people working very collaboratively and they have to, and they increasingly have to have good, you know, collaboration skills. So the alone thing is wrong. The second thing, this idea that you sort of sit down and just write code at like typing speed, <laughs> it just flows out of you is hilariously wrong because the thing about software and, and computers is that they're a computer is a very, very unforgiving thing to work with because um, if I'm, if I'm what software programming really is, is giving instructions to the computer and you have to break those instructions down very, very literally and very specifically, you know, like if I were to tell you, could you go pour me some milk, you know, you know, I'm issuing an instruction to you, a human, and you, you have a lot of knowledge. You know how to execute that. You know how to open a fridge. But if you tell, if you wanted to tell a computer to get me a glass of milk, you'd have to explain everything from how to open the fridge to how to hold the milk to the idea that you have to open the milk cartridge. It's like, and if you forget one little step, it's not going to work. Or if you slightly write that instruction wrong, you know, put a comma in the wrong place, it's not going to work. So basic typos, it's not going to work. And so when you, when you talk to software developers, um, what you realize they mostly do all day long is they stare at their screens because the software isn't working because they made one of those mistakes. Like they've, they, they, they put it, they, they sort of forgot an instruction in the middle of it, or they made a tiny weird typo or their original idea for how this is going to work is simply not feasible, but either way, 99% of the time they are just staring at the screen, running their hands with their hair, pacing around, cursing themselves, feeling like utter failures because they, 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 they can't get this thing to work. That is literally what coding is like. Um, people often ask me, they're like, you know, so what are the kind of, what's the psychology of coders or what, you know, how would you describe their, their intellectual or cognitive makeup? And, uh, and, you know, uh, some of the stuff I think people could guess, you know, they, they have to be very logical. You know, if you're going to do this, if you're going to do this sort of um, issuing of, an, of instructions, you have to be very logical, um, you know, and you have to, you know, you don't really have to be very good at math. But, um, but the one thing that most people didn't expect, and I don't think I expected either when I started my research, was that to be a programmer, you have to have a superhuman intolerance for frustration because that 99% of the time, when things aren't working, that's really the work. Enduring that brutal grinding frustration, that's the work. And so I've never met people. I find it quite admirable, actually. I've never met a group of people that so routinely are just sitting around looking at busted things, never sure that they're ever going to get it to work. And that's kind of what coding actually looks like. There's a, a great quote in your book, actually, where I think you say something along the lines of coding is in a profound way less about making things than about fixing them. Yeah, it's it, it, exactly. It's not building a building, it's plumbing, right? It's just, you know, and, and it's so weird. I mean, like, like, I've just been sitting around, I spent the last two weeks, I, I, I did the most programmer thing that anyone can do, which is to make my own to do application, because like coders always have, you always have like, everyone has some way they want to organize their, their their to do's to get things done. Mm -hmm. And the software you have is never quite exactly your particularly idiosyncratic, weird, gnarled way of doing things. So everyone rolls their own. And so I finally 
got sick of dealing with to-do systems that didn't work and I, I made my own and it's super weird. Um, but I, you know, I, you know, I spent 99% of my time staring at it, trying to figure out why the heck it wasn't working. Um, now the funny thing is though, the flip side, the reason why everyone's willing to endure that level of frustration, that unbelievably brutal, you know, sort of, um, rolling the boulder up the hill, get flattened by it over and over again, the Sisyphean combat with the computer. The reason why they're willing to endure that is because the, the 1% of the time when things finally work is the feeling of, of success, of accomplishment, of power is, is unlike anything else that I've ever experienced in life, right? Like when I finally got the software working, like I, I had this rush of joy and accomplishment that never occurs in my writing, in music. I'm also a musician. There, there's, there's nothing I do in my life that has that sort of amazing feeling. And I think it's because it's a combination of, you know, basic success, the thing is working, um, with the, the feeling of a life form coming to life, that Frankensteinian moment, like, like because software really has, is like this creation that sort of is, is doing your command. So there's a sense of power. Um, and there's also a sense of finality and objective finality, um, which is to say, the software is working and and no one can tell me it's not working. And by what I mean is that a lot of accomplishments we have in life um, are more subjective than that. Uh, someone can, you know, I can write a book or an article and someone can say, well, that's not a very good article, right? I mean, there is no, there is no objective proof that Coders is a good book. I, I like it, you know, you liked it, but a lot of people don't. So I, I cannot objectively say that that book is great. That book, quote unquote, works. Um, and people all across the business world feel this, you know, you make a presentation, some people liked it, some people didn't, you know, you give a speech, some people liked it, some people didn't, you teach a class, it kind of works with some of the students, kind of doesn't with others. With coding, there is an absolute finality that the damn thing is working. And it feels great because someone can come along and say, well, I think you're a software, I think your to-do list is stupid. I don't think it works. I don't think, I don't like the way you've designed it, but you cannot tell me that the code is not functioning because it's just sitting there doing what it's supposed to do. And that, that feeling of clarity in success is very unusual. It's, it's very unlike anything else in the arts. Um, even in engineering, it's an unusual form of accomplishment. And I think that's what keeps coders constantly in the game chasing that high. I think part of it as well is a sense of, of victory when you've grappled with something, because the longer you've grappled with it, I find the more tasty the victory is. Uh, and one of the challenges of working from home as a developer is sometimes there's no one to share my victory. Oh, yeah, I know. Like my wife has gotten, I mean, I work from home too, right? I'm, I'm alone. And, I, and I'm, I'm, only a, I'm only a hobbyist programmer. Like I do, I make tools for myself um, to help to make my work better. But, you know, my wife has gotten used to, um, you know, hearing me sitting in the room, totally silent for four hours, and then suddenly let out this whoop of joy and like punch the air. And, and she's like, what's going on? You know, or, or she'll hear me like, like yell something like, oh my God, so stupid, you know, cause I'll finally have seen the thing I did and realize that I've just been tripping over some idiotic air of my own. Um, and so, yeah, it, it, I think you, you probably have that thing you're sitting in your room and like, and and you 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 you're doing some sort of weird victory lap all on your own. There's um there's a passage in the book where this uh, this guy had been he he 
he'd quit his job. It was like a Twitter and whatnot. And he was working on his, on a new app of his own, a music app. And he was, he was sort of talking about, he wrote this funny blog post that I quoted talking about the psychology of developing something new like that. And he said like, there's, there's no middle ground in your emotions. You're either walking around, you know, weeping, uh, you know, about how stupid you are or, you know, calling his mother in like an ecstatic trance, basically saying, you know, I'm, I'm effing the game up, man. And like, <laughs> just like, you know, primping and preening and peacocking and then, and then immediately going back down to that layer of I'm an idiot. I'm an idiot. This will never work. Like, it's really weird. I think it's actually why people that work near coders, like literally physically proximal coders, but are not coders can sometimes find it awkward to physically deal with them because if you if you go over and like tap them on the shoulder when they're in the middle of that trough you know the person is very hard to deal with because their mind is completely occupied and they feel like an absolute failure so it's really not a pleasant person to talk to but if you happen to encounter them in that one percent of the time when they've just succeeded they're just a preening crowing boasting like you know like uh, you know, ball of braggadocio, and that's equally unpleasant to deal with. There's, as someone said to me, some developer said to me, "There's, there's no time you can interrupt me when I'm not going to be some type of a jerk, basically." Um, and, <laughs> and I was like, you know, and I sort of wrote that into the book. I said, you know, the one thing you shouldn't do with a programmer is never interrupt them in the middle of the programming. Basically, <laughs> wait for them to emerge from that world. Basically. You also talk in the book about coders having an artistic temperament. And I would love for you to unpack this one because it's something that I think many of us know in our heart of hearts, but that many people also push back against because coding mm -hmm. feels like it's a logical, factual, STEMI mm -hmm. sort of thing. And to say that coders have an artistic temperament, I think will ruffle some coders' feathers. It, it may. Um, although, uh Although I think actually the, the parts of it, uh, the parts of it that, that seem like overlap to me, I think if, if I explain them, I, th I think they, they generally agree with it. And what I, what I really meant was this. There's a couple ways that coders work and wrestle with their work that reminds me very much of artists. Because uh, I know a lot of coders and I know a lot of artists. And so I've, I've sort of observed this. And uh, one example is the state of flow that both artists and coders uh, work in and treasure and, 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 and crave. And what I mean by flow is when you start coding, uh, when you sit down to do some work, if you're, if you're doing something that's non-trivial, that's complicated, you know, more than just like fixing, you know, one little, a little five line function or something. And maybe, and maybe sometimes fixing that five line, five line function might, might actually turn out to be non-trivial but the point is if you're doing something that, that's hard uh it actually takes you a long time just staring at the code and thinking about it to get to the point where you sort of understand the flow of of what's there and how it's supposed to work and why it's not working because you know code is often uh, is systems or pieces of code talking to one another right like one one quote-unquote function is like sending a piece of data to another function that transforming it and sending it somewhere else that is relying on timing from a, a signal coming from a different place, maybe from a different website, what they call an API. And so there's, there's this kind of very complicated, if this happens, that should happen. If that, but, but if that happens, this should happen. And all the while these things should be updated. And to get that clear in your head, you will sometimes need to spend many, many hours 
this is before you've even written a line of code, but you have to have that all installed in your head. And once it's there, then the work can begin. You know, you can, you can begin tinkering with making changes because you, you have loaded into your head, this crystal palace, this map of how things connect and they work. And because it takes so many hours to get there, coders really want to stay there. They want to keep on working. It actually, and it feels very good. They're now in what they, you know, uh, chick sent me high that psychologist calls a state of flow, uh, just like a, a, a long distance runner working at the peak of their performance. And they will want to work for two, three, four, 10, 15, 24 hours because they can get so much done when they're in that state. And so you very frequently hear of these, of these situations where coders will sit down, maybe only intending to work for a couple hours and then not move for 15 because they got in that state. And that really, again, reminds me of the way that a lot of novelists or poets or playwrights or, or visual artists or sculptors will work. They, the work that they're doing requires them to build something uh, new in their minds and they will stare at the page. They will stare at the, at the, at the sculpture, at the paint for a long time. And when they get in the state where they realize where it is they're trying to go, they don't want to leave. They're in that flow state. Also, this comes to the point I mentioned earlier about interrupting them. Um, because it's really hard to get in that flow state, it's also easy to break out of it. If someone comes to you and says, hey, you know, I need five minutes of your time, you know, come in for this meeting. Every coder would tell me that that would most, most of the time wreck their flow state. It, they would they would lose that crystal palace they'd built in their mind of all those connections. And it was going to take four more hours to get back to where they were. And so that tends to produce a situation where a lot of coders will prefer to work really late at night when no one's going to bother them. Like to start that hard work at seven in the evening and conclude it at six the next morning, right? And again, this really reminds me of a lot of a lot of artists I know who have that same problem like I can't I need 14 clear hours for no one to bother me to get this work done and so they just they pull these all-nighters they do these weird things or they go on retreats and whatnot and if you do interrupt them uh they will fly into a rage you know both the novelist and and the programmer because you have just disturbed the magic circle you have just wrecked their work it's like um uh, that, that, that famous poem, uh, Kubla Khan, uh, by Coleridge. So, you know, he was doing what you do. And when you're a romantic poet in the, in the, in the early 19th century, uh, you're, you know, he's, you know, doing a lot of opium and he's super high. Um, and he, uh, and he has this idea for a poem and it all comes to him right in his head. And, and he's in that flow state and he's writing and writing, and writing like a madman. And then someone knocks on the door and it's a business person from a nearby town called Porlock, the person from Porlock. We don't know who it was. He never said. And they have a conversation for a while, some business thing. And finally, Collard just like, I have to get back to this poem. This is the best poem I've ever written. And when he goes back, it's gone. Mm. And so Kubla Khan is a famously unfinished poem. Uh, and that there, so there, there's this very deep similarity between the, um, the, the, the sort of intellectual and cognitive uh, style of artists and poets. It's, it's a very artistic flow of work and passion. Of course, one of the challenges with this around coders, which you also unpack in the book, is that coders are, are white collar workers, but this kind of deep, this need for this uh, deep concentration uh, often puts them at pretty sharp odds with a lot of the white collar norms. 
Yes, exactly. Because they look like they look like they're doing the same thing an accountant does. They're sitting at a at a laptop. They look like they're the same thing that that you know the person is doing in human resources. They're sitting at a laptop. But what they're actually doing is much closer to, you know, Margaret Atwood writing a novel, basically. And so you have to imagine that when you walk in the office that okay, that's that's Phil in accounts receivable. That's, you know, that's sort of, you know, uh, um, Kalyani in, in accounting and that's Margaret Atwood sitting there and she's writing a novel, you know, and that's, that's essentially what it sort of looks like, but it becomes very hard to manage them because, um, you know, again, a manager will think actually there was this great essay written, um, by Paul Graham, uh, who is a, a former programmer and, 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 uh, an investor. Now he found Y Combinator, which is one of these quote unquote accelerators where they, people show up with a idea for a, a startup and it tries to get them up and running. Um, so Paul Graham wrote an essay called maker time and manager time. And he basically said, you know, a manager, uh, the person running the programming division, running the company sees the world as, as a Google calendar. You know, every hour there's a different meeting and their job is to meet with people to make sure things are getting done. And so they'll be like, all right, so bring, let's bring Clive in, you know, our programmer at one in the afternoon. And if I'm a programmer, I'm like, okay, what you've just done is you've completely wrecked my day because I will just be into my flow state in the morning when you, when you pull me into that meeting and there won't be enough time at the end of the day to get back into that flow state. And so managing them is, is actually kind of, again, like managing just a, a, a room full of artists. I think in some respects, I wish I'd made this parallel in the book, but it reminds me a little bit of, did you ever watch Mad Men? I did. Yes. Okay. So, so there's this, there's this moment when one of the top managers who's like kind of a, a bean counter is saying to, uh, um, to Don Draper, who, who, who really manages, like he's, he's actually an ad guy, creative guy himself. He's, he's amazing at creating ads. And he's got his team of four or five people that are working on, like trying to think of a campaign for some car. And they've just been lit. And, and the person walks by the room and looks in the window and sees, you know, one of them like throwing pencils, at, uh, trying to stick them into the roof. And someone else is like, you know, folding paper airplanes. The other one's like reading a novel. And he goes to Don Draper and he's like, they're not doing any work. Uh, and he's like, you don't understand they're creatives and they are unproductive until they're not like, and that's what the work looks like. Like if you want them to come up with that idea for Chevy, that's what they're doing. They're coming up with that idea. And so there's, there's, there's a little bit of a similarity to that with coding, right? Because as with other creative endeavors, um, there's uh, uh, fixing those problems is a series of insights. It's a series of aha moments. It's not brute force. You can't, um, you can't just layer more labor at it. And that's why actually there's this other famous, um, dictum from, uh, the 1970s, uh, a guy wrote a book called the mythical man month. And what they mean by that is like, um, you could think of a person with a shovel, uh, how much can they dig in one month? How much can that person, that, that is a, a man month or you know, person month of labor. And so if you want the ditch to be dug really quickly, you need a hundred person months of labor, get a hundred people there, hundred shovels, that ditch will happen faster. And what this, uh, what this writer, Fred Brooks had noticed is that you'd have, he'd, he'd often see even, even in the 1970s, you'd have a software project that was late. And so it's like, well, you know, managers that thought of programming as ditch digging would go, well, let's add another 50 programmers. We've only got 10 and they would add 50 programmers and the, and now the project would go more slowly. And (laughs) this was baffling to, 
to to a generation managers who just thought of this as like you're just typing lines of code like if you have a 60 people you'll type them you know 50 times faster right and uh but that's not the way it works because it's a, a form of insight work where you have to load that thing in your head and get an idea um an awful lot can be done by a few number of people uh and really the challenge is in breaking the work into little chunks that can each be solved by one unitary mind right and so it really is like it's more like i guess trying to you know trying to write a novel by adding more people to it it doesn't it doesn't really always work that way unless you unless you have some sort of novel where you can modular modularize the chapters and get everyone to write in the same style so it, it is it is it is it's often baffling for people if, if they haven't come out of coding themselves it's very hard for them to manage coders because they simply don't understand the nature of the work I do uh, really like the idea of it. They're not productive until they're productive. Like it, it's, it's very true for those types of work, creative work, oh, yeah. but also programming because it is a whole lot of what appears and quite often is unproductive time. And then all of a sudden that all manages to lead to a rush of productivity that is sudden and unpredictable, but yeah. so like compressed into this tiny slot and you can't have the one without all of the ostensibly unproductive time before it. Yeah. Even, even with my own crappy little, you know, stupid hobbyist programming, I'll be like, I'll get stuck on something. And I'm like, and I do something that seems like I'm avoiding it. Like, I'll be like, all right, let me, you know, in the process of trying to, you know, you know, find someone else who's encountered my problem on Stack Overflow or something, you know, I'll sort of encounter someone mentioning some other JavaScript library that has nothing to do with what I'm doing. I'll be like, oh, that looks interesting. And I'll go and poke around with it and I'll sort of play with it and like, oh, I could, I could build something different with this. But in the middle of that, of that stuff, somehow my brain will figure out what my actual problem is. And so I've spent the seven hours of dorking around with some of the, you know, data, you know, a uh, crunching library that has nothing to do with what I'm trying to do. But in the middle of that, I'll figure the problem out and I'll go back and I'll, and I'll fix it. And I probably wouldn't have figured it out with that, that seven hours of weird, seemingly stupid digression, right? Yeah. I do also want to talk about the broader culture. And in particular, I thought the way that you talked about the kind of eras of programmers um, in your book was quite interesting. And um, also, I think, elucidating of where we are and how we got there. So could you give us kind of a high level sure. overview of those different eras? Yeah, I, I was, you know, and actually, you can you can actually thank uh, my wife Emily Nussbaum, who is a who is a, um, herself a journalist and a fantastic writer. Um, I was talking through the book even before I'd written a chap any chapters at all, and I I was talking about how like what was interesting was I interviewed so many developers beginning from the the very early days of coding in the 1950s up until ones who were like you know like 19 and just you know, eager beavers joining the industry now. And I could, I could detect these differences in kind of their motivations and why they got into it and the type of coding they were doing. And, uh, and she said, my God, that that's, you should break that down. That's really interesting. No one has any idea that there's been these kind of different waves of coders. And so that entire, the entire second chapter, the four waves of coders came from, you know, her, her offhand comment that that was interesting. And so what those four waves are, is that you know, you know, there's there's really no computer programming before the 1950s, really, because the early work developing digital computers during the wartime in the 40s, you know, only begins to leach into the commercial world 
uh, in the uh, in the 1950s and early 60s when they're making computers and businesses are going, hey, you know, we could we could use this to tally up our payroll really quickly, you know, save time, be more accurate, or we could use it to do projections of sales data, you know, to sort of try and figure out what sales are going to be like. It's all, it's all sort of data crunching. And the people who, but at that point in time, coding was not thought of as a valuable thing. Um, in fact, it was regarded as a somewhat menial, ironically, it was regarded as somewhat a, sort of a menial thing, almost a secretarial thing, because you're at a keyboard. Uh, and so because it was low value, low status, and seen as vaguely secretarial, uh, the door was really open for anyone to do it because all the sort of, you know, kind of white dudes who would who were looking for high value stuff and high status stuff were not interested in it. And what that meant is that a lot of women uh, were were scouted into coding. Like um, you know, they would they would companies would send, you know, talent scouts out to colleges. There's this one woman I know who was at um oh boy, uh Wesleyan, I think, uh uh uh, a women's college and someone from AT&T came by and said, we're looking for coders, you know, we'll take anyone, you know, and she, she was, a, she was in music and she, she, she was a music student. She missed that call. And a friend of hers the next day said, well, did you do the AT&T call? Did you do a, a test? And she's like, I'm not going to be a software programmer. I have no idea what that. And, uh, but they said, no, 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 they're really interested in everyone and even like music students. And so she called AT&T up in Northern New York and they said, oh yeah, we'd love to interview you here. We're going to mail you a plane ticket to fly her up just for the injury. That's how hungry they were for anyone to be a coder. Wow. The door, the door was really open. They were desperate for talent. And of course it turns out, you know, when you are, when an industry is genuinely meritocratic, when it, when it is genuinely saying we're looking for anyone that can do this, they get, they get a lot of women. They get a lot of people that today would be considered, you know, quote unquote, non-traditional candidates. So there's a really a, like a, you know, in, 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 and this is in the 1960s when women were being told to stay home, right? So there's very few women in the business world at all. In 1960, just to give you a sense of the scale here, 27% of all professional coders in the US were women. And uh, I'm going to come back to that number because that's the first wave. The second wave is when you start to see what they call kind of hackers. And this is at universities like MIT. And they're starting to develop the first computers that are quote unquote personal computers. All the computers back in the fifties and sixties were more like a great big mainframe some sitting somewhere and you sent your code in and it came back, you know, five hours later, you know, you weren't sort of, you weren't typing and immediately getting a response back. Beginning in the 1970s, places like MIT got these kind of cool, more personal computers where you could, you could immediately execute software and then change it and, 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 and morph it. And you had this kind of direct cybernetic loop that felt very fun, like what we now think of as coding. And so a lot of these, a lot of these kind of basically kind of like hippie, like almost exclusively dudes were very interested in using computers for kind of quirky, fun, cultural things, right? Like they would go in late at night when no one was using these computers and they would use them to, you know, get them to make music, to generate music, or they would get them to like play chess, or they would get them to write algorithmic poetry, or they would just do these kind of fun things. And they, their vision was that coding should be for everyone. Everyone should have a computer and it should be used for creative things. And this was like a very weird idea back then because computers were at that point up until then seen entirely as business things, but they had this kind of, I think, very forward looking vision. They also had 
this great love of like doing things, you know, efficiently and doing a lot in a few lines of code and also openly sharing everything that they created. Like their idea was I wrote this software, but anyone should be able to use it. It's just words on a page. It's just instructions to a computer. I don't own it. And so they had this very, they, they started to create this idea of, of radical openness in the way that coding worked. So, um, so that was kind of the next wave. And one of the problems with that wave is that you began to see women starting to get pushed out of that world because there were very few involved. You had to, you had to be there to stay late at night in the midnight in the building. And a lot of women at that age, you know, female students were simply not allowed to be on campus late at night. Meanwhile, in the corporate world, in the 1970s and 80s, you know, software was becoming valuable. And when something becomes valuable, uh, the guys all rush in and realize, oh, oh, we're going to do this. You know, <laughs> like, uh, you know, we'll take over now, ladies. And, and you know, literally, you know, I talked to all these women who had been in the late 50s, early 60s to late 60s. They'd been like top engineers at their companies. And beginning around the late 70s, the companies were like, huh, well, software is now super important to our corporation. So we need to hire coders who might eventually become vice president because we need someone, we're going to need these trained people to manage the division. And no way in heck was any company going to let a woman be vice president back in the early 1970s. So they started, I, I talked to these women, they'd be like, yeah, they'd be shown, they'd be, a, you know, in 32 and 10 years coding, and they'd be shown some 24 year old, like, here's Jeff, you're going to, you're going to train him and he's eventually going to become your manager and then vice president, you know, and this just happened over and over again. Also, if you get pregnant, there was laws on the books, like, you know, Massachusetts had a law. If you are a pregnant woman, you cannot have a job. You're taking the job away from a man who needs to support his family. So the, again, these 10 year career coders who were amazing were just shown the door if they had a kid basically. So the industry started structurally just pushing all these women out and the hacker world was very dude like so that's the second wave the third wave is kind of the wave that i'm involved in because i'm 51 years old and uh in the 1980s you got these kind of almost toy-like computers so you plugged into a, a tv like a vic 20 commodore 64 and you could just sit at home in your basement and learn coding with basic which is really an easy language and that started to create this idea that like wow, you know, a teenager could just sort of stumble into coding, right? And anyone could, could learn to be a coder because you could just take a book out of the library. You could share code with your friends and you did it just for fun. You, you made video games, you made little insult generators, you made databases, and that's kind of what I did, right? And a huge number, that sort of exploded the world of coding. And again, though, it made it, it still was making it kind of more of a thing of guys because, you know, you go back and talk to the historians who study that period. And I certainly remember this myself was that, you know, in the early 1980s, there was none of this kind of like, Hey, girls should do engineering. You know, in fact, it was the opposite. There was very much the, the idea that came right from the parents and the teachers on downwards that that stuff is for boys. Right. And the girls and the social stuff, that's what they should be doing. So, you know, I would go to the computer club, and, you know, it was all guys basically in the 1980s. And, and, and that was not because the girls were not interested, you know, a lot of them were interested, but this was just, they, there was a lot of social censure. If you were, you could be a nerdy guy. It wasn't easy, but you could be a nerdy guy. There was, there was a path that there was, there was no social role for the nerdy girl back then. Um, and then, and then the, the sort of last phase is kind of the one that I think we're in right now, which is where software has become you know, incredibly valuable. 
um, those first three generations, no one really thought they could make millions off software. They thought you could by the by the second generation, they knew they could you know make a decent living, become vice president. But the idea that you might become a billionaire overnight. That only happened in the 1990s. And so the generation of people who are going into software now, very different group. It's very interesting. Um, they've all sort of learned software because they're online. They're using the web, using phones. They're all aware that like there's these, you know, 19 year olds like Mark Zuckerberg who just became billionaires with an idea. And so that starts to draw people who are maybe not so interested in the code themselves, right? They're interested in getting rich. And that can become a little, a little disappointing. For some of the people who have been around for a while or maybe teaching coding, like I talked to these professors who were at Stanford and uh, a famous computer science program, and they would get these people coming in who, you know, in a previous generation would have just maybe gone to Wall Street and made millions of dollars. They're just primarily interested in getting rich, but now they're there because they want to do some machine learning thing and make a bucket of money. I mean, I'm not, I don't want to, I don't want to. I don't want to make a blanket statement. There's like still a ton of people who are interested in coding for that pure kind of, they just love the, the, the head puzzle, but there's this new entrant, which is the, the coder that really just sees this as a, as a, as a gate to riches. Um, and that's become, that's become very interesting uh, alongside that. And this is the last thing I'll say before this long lecture on the, on the, on the, uh, on the four waves of coding is over, but um, there's also increasingly almost like kind of um, a, a a cohort of, of young people seeking not wealth, but stability. The idea that this is essentially a form of white collar labor that, that is not being, <laughs> that is not being offshored or is not being destroyed. And that this might be a ticket not to wealth, but just to like a stable life, making good money and affording a house. That's kind of interesting too. Another thing that's sort of new. So those are, that's what the four waves of coding are like. And you can sort of see how women got, were pioneers and then got driven out and are only now just starting to creep back in. Yeah, it's interesting. One of the things you talk about as well, um, both in conjunction with women, but also in conjunction with something you call blue collar coding, which, by the way, is a great term that I had never heard before and is really stuck in my brain. The idea of um, this hierarchy of value, even within coding and some of the language we yeah. use to describe certain types or certain areas of writing code that seem to be more open to a diverser mindset, while other areas remain very much the kind of world of, of white men. Um, yeah. So we see differing parts of diversity. Um, as sure. a, I mean, and, and I think I'm probably a fairly illustrative example of this. I got into programming uh, in a very typical way for a female. I started building nerdy websites on the internet because I wanted to proclaim the things I was nerdy about. And in doing that, <laughs> I wrote HTML and CSS, um, the kind of what we think of as the front end uh, access. Uh, it's still mm. kind of thought of as front end. And if you look at the percentage of women in the industry, a lot of women are sitting somewhere in front end code. Not all of them, certainly not all of them, yeah. but there are yeah. definitely sort of better numbers in front end than there are in something that we would think of as back end code in the industry, which is around the real kind of complex business logic databases infrastructure. Um, when you get into something like security, the numbers are even worse. That is very much the enclave still of predominantly white men. And there are very, very few women in yep. security. Um, so it's, it's interesting to me that even within the industry, there are um, differing value judgments and differing, you know, people will say things like, well, that's not real code. If you're talking to someone who writes HTML and CSS. Right. Exactly. There's every time women are able to come back in or non-traditional, 
you know, sort of uh, demographic groups who haven't been represented in the past, every time they're able to sort of claw their way in, it's often in these areas where just like yourself, there are no gatekeepers. You can teach yourself. You know, they can sort of learn enough HTML and CSS to make a website. Then they learn some JavaScript. They're like, oh, I can actually, I can actually get this thing to be interactive. And they learn a little bit how to write things in databases. And before you know it, they can basically make kind of useful, useful applications, you know, for, for companies or whatnot. They're basically a, a, a quite skilled coder. But because, you know, because it's become very much an enclave of, of, of not even just white guys, but young white guys right like it's wild how ageist this is too like uh you know one of the things that is very funny about uh certain cohorts of men i talked to in coding was that you know some of them some of them were sort of i guess um had their consciousness raised when they got to their 30s and 40s because they had thought everything was just a meritocracy in their 20s and early 30s because they're like well you know hey i got a job easily you know and i knew i worked hard so if women and you know other visible minorities aren't in here it's because they're not as good they thought that until they were like 35 when suddenly they couldn't get hired anywhere because the industry wants young people that will work 180 hours you know a week <laughs> without complaining basically uh, um uh, literally a, li- literally amount that's that's you know barely sleeping and you know senior more senior people in their 30s and 40s won't do that and they they can't get arrested anymore and so they the 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 sort of demographic narrowness is really small, but when people can 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 sort of claw their way in through these through these through their front end through JavaScript through HTML, um, the industry starts going okay. Well, yeah, that stuff let's not pay that much for it anymore, you know, or that's not like you said that's not real coding, and they retreat to an area, new area, what's considered to be a hot new area that will that they can sort of slam the door shut. Again, and you mentioned, um, you know, backend. That's one of them. Inf- information security. That's another one. Two other ones that have emerged recently in the last five years, I would say, is AI mm-hmm. and uh, blockchain. Mm. You go to an AI and blockchain conference, and it's there's very few women. You know, um, and again, that may change. It may take time, but it is it is sort of it's fascinating to see how cyclical and fractal uh, the sort of exclusions that happen, uh, that I, I don't want to say happen, that's passive, uh, that are created, these gates that are thrown up over and over again. Um, it, uh, it makes you realize, wow, this is, you know, this is a, this is not something that's just going to get fixed. It's going to be a constant struggle. It's been interesting too, um, and this might be a little too close to the industry, but as someone who is a programmer and works in the industry and follows what's happening in the last five to eight years, there's been a push to um, front-end engineering rather than front-end development or uh, front-end work or web design work or UI UX work to some extent, which has involved a bunch of um, JavaScript libraries that do a bunch of different types of things. And even in the front-end now, there's some, there's now all these kinds of fake walls that have built up around, well, that's front-end engineering and that's just web design. And there's some some interesting stuff even happening within those areas as I think I I would suspect that a lot of of young people who get in the same way that maybe I got in are trying to kind of carve out an area of value for themselves. And and to some Mm -hmm. extent, the industry is is prone to buy into some of those. Oh, absolutely. I mean, like you mentioned earlier that like, you know, that there was this division when you were trying to explain front end and back end, you know, to the listeners that, you know, the front end is where the web page is displayed and whatnot. And the back end is where all this like complex server code happens. But the truth is that that might've been true 20 years ago. Um, when the browser was a very simple thing and all you could really do was send it a basic web page. 
So anything complicated, you know, you know, entering new data, you know, taking something from the form and putting it into a database and whatnot, all had to happen purely on the back end. But in the last 20 years, the browser has become a very powerful thing that can execute incredibly complicated software. And so quote unquote front end that all these, you know, women and non-traditional category, you know, folks have been training themselves in, it's actually increasingly unbelievably complicated, hard programming, right? So it's even more hilarious that that it gets denigrated for being uh, not real coding. It's like, have you tried, you know, writing some of this, like, you know, managing state in some of these, some of these JavaScript applications? It's insanely hard. And so exactly what you've said, they've, you know, they've had to react by going, okay, okay, well, maybe there's some hard parts of that. So let's call that engineering and call anyone that's like, Think worrying about how like make things useful for the user. Let's call that design. You know that 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 nasty, stupid stuff where you have to worry about. You know who wants to spend their time in CSS? That's terrible stuff. Yeah, although as I've joked, now that CSS has developed, you know, variables and complex stuff, um, that's where that's where self-aware AI is going to emerge and kill Mm. us all. Uh, um, It's not going to be in AI. It's just going to be some incredibly complicated CSS uh, file that like achieves self-awareness and starts slaughtering humans. So we're just about out of time, but I do want to talk a little bit about the idea of blue collar coding, because I think it is an incredibly important part of the tech industry that is not talked about enough and very much under the surface, even in the consciousness and awareness of a lot of people who work in the industry, because I think there's a lot of people who even if they are doing what we might call blue collar coding, um, they like to think of themselves as not necessarily in that category. So can you talk a little bit about that term? Yeah, sure. So uh, the phrase, the first time I've ever seen it used was by a friend of mine um, who's a programmer and a, and a, and a, and a, and a CEO, Anil Dash. Uh, and about four or five years ago, he wrote a great blog post. Uh, I think it was called Blue Collar Coding. And he basically said, you know, coding, um, you know, people think of coding as like, you have to be doing some startup, you know, and trying to get venture capital and make something totally new and be in, in Silicon Valley. But the vast majority of coding, and I discovered just in the US when I crunched the numbers, it's like 92% of all coding jobs are not in Silicon Valley. They're everywhere across the country. And what Anil pointed out is that all those jobs, you know, they are in all sorts of communities. You know, you don't need to move for it. You know, if, if, if you're in Tennessee, they need you in Tennessee. If you're in Ontario, they need you in Ontario. If you're in Calgary, they need you in Calgary. And they are jobs that require... Um, all the sort of insight and that deeply creative, you know, flow of coding. Um, but they're in areas that, you know, you know, people don't necessarily think of in coding. They, they might be in banking, they might be in mining, it might be in, in hospitality or whatnot. And, uh, and those needs are growing. Like all those industries are developing more and more and more reliance on software. And they're sort of hungry for people. And, and it's types of coding that you might not need like a four-year computer science degree for, right? You know, you might not need to spend all that money. You, you know, it'd be something, it's, it's level of coding that you could actually dispense with very well in a two year, you know, community college degree, much less expensive, much more amenable to lower income people. Um, but yet would, would catapult them into these very, very solidly middle and upper middle class jobs. And so, you know, it's a, when he called a blue collar coding, you know, uh, what he really meant was we need to stop thinking about this as this priesthood of rare people who, you know, are again, almost always, you know, you know, sort of young white dudes, you know, who are hacking away in Silicon Valley, the coding is everywhere. And it, 
it, it actually maybe more resembles the quote unquote blue collar work of the 60s and 70s and 80s that created the North American middle class, right? And, you know, we could actually, if we were to start thinking of it that way, we could actually, we could have some smart public policy that would actually in, sort of, you know, assert and, um, and, uh, uh, and, and reflect and encourage that, that way of thinking about coding, ranging from, you know, much better funding to community colleges uh, to be an amazing gateway, you know, with a really good, t- solid, good quality two-year program, you know, giving them enough money so they could actually hire really good quality instructors and whatnot. Um, there's a lot of interesting things, you know, there's a lot of interesting ways that a, a country, a city, uh, a province, a state could respond uh, to to the job market if they if they just change the way they think about what a coding job is. So I'm interested to hear after having written the book um, and done the research and spent a shocking amount of time with uh, a group of people who is a little bit weird, as we've heard today, um, and can often be uh, really frustratingly pedantic and not very nice. Um, I'm interested to hear broadly, what were some of the most surprising things you learned about uh, the culture of code? And the people who do the work sort of as a, as a takeaway for yourself, but also potentially that you think is a, a strong takeaway for the listener, for the reader. I think, um, I'm actually, I'm actually going to make a takeaway here that has less to do with, um, what I learned about software, uh, developers and more about how, um, what I learned might actually affect everyone, right? Mm-hmm. Because, you know, one thing I learned when I was when I was researching this book was that um, was that uh, there's this idea that that writing software is something that only you know very special people do you know who work very hard at it and who tr- maybe get a four year computer science degree. Um, but then I started meeting a lot of people like you who'd sort of just learned a little bit you know online and, and maybe they went really deep into it. But there was also a separate set of people who didn't even go as far as you went. They learned a little bit and they used it, you know, in their job. Maybe their, maybe their job is to, you know, update the HTML on, 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 on the corporate site, but that's the only kind of quote unquote coding they do. Or maybe there is, you know, an accountant who learned like just a little bit of Python, which is this actually, you know, quite pleasant and relatively easy, easy language to learn that, uh, that she would use to, you know, to sort of take data from one spreadsheet and transform it and put it somewhere else and, take like something that used to be four hours of work and turn it into 30 seconds. Um, and that's sort of what happened to me too, because, you know, I learned basic programming when I was a kid, but I never really did much of it throughout my twenties and thirties because I was busy being a writer. And then I got kind of got interested in those old skills and I started dusting off and learning a little bit of coding, not with the goal of being a coder, but just kind of, you know, just for fun, almost that artistic creative sense. And what I discovered was that, wow, I could actually sort of just with a little bit of, stuff I'd learned, I could make these little scripts and these tiny little applications that were very useful for my work. And so I sort of do this like on the side coding that makes me more powerful as a journalist. And so the thing I've often said to people, they've said to me like, you know, should I learn to code? You know, like, is this, or should my kids learn to code? And I'm kind of like, well, you know, you know, maybe if, if you, if you want to be a full-time software developer, that might not be realistic if you're, you know, if, if you're already far along in your career, but this can be a really fun and creative, you know, outlet for your mind. Um, and it can become kind of oddly useful. So I tell people often just, you know, try learning a little bit of it because there's this whole universe 
of like hidden coders who are really hidden because they're not even quote unquote computer programmers, but they're doing these little bits on the side that make their life easier and is really pleasant. And to me, that's another interesting uh, world of coding that I haven't yet really fully explored that I really want to write about um, that, that seems like a, like a, a mass, a, re- a real mass literacy, right? You know, not where you need to be fully trained in this, but you know, it's almost like being able to cook, you know, I'm not a professional cook, but I can cook well enough to make a meal for myself at home. Mm-hmm. And, and that's, there's, there's, there's this, there's this whole fascinating, you know, iceberg of coding below the visible part that's poking out of the water that, uh, that I think is really interesting. And I would encourage anyone listening, if they're, if they're intrigued by this, if, if any part of what I've said resonates with some part of your, your personality to give it a try. I will say as someone who um, is a day-to-day programmer, uh, that's part of what I do on a daily basis, but also who is, as you are, a utility programmer, um, where I can find utility in my own life. I will also note for the uh, interested, curious listener that if you spend any amount of time beyond passing on spreadsheets, CSVs, Excel files, there's a whole lot of utility to be found in a little bit of Python knowledge, I will say that. Oh my God. Yeah. I mean, and, and, and actually I will say that there's a whole world of code, like full-time coders I met whose, whose entry, entry point was Excel spreadsheets. They, because Excel is basically a programming language, right? You know, Mm -hmm. it's, it's, it's being executed, you know, by the, by the, by the, uh, by, by Excel itself, you know, you're writing little things saying, if this happens, change this, if that happens, change that. And so anyone who mucks around with Excel is basically already programming. And you dip your, right now, for example, you could use Google spreadsheets and you can write little bits of JavaScript in there. So, um, you know, you don't even need to install a new, you don't even need to install Python on your computer. You can literally just open your browser and start, you know, coding inside those, those Excel spreadsheets. It's it's a really fun, really fun, I think, playful world that's opening up here, which is nice. Yeah, I will say that one of the first uh, automations I ever did in the working world was I used to have to write a report that took me something like a day and a half to write every week. Right. And I, using mostly the VLOOKUP function in Excel, I managed to turn that into about a uh, 20-minute job. Um, oh, my God. That's was, wonderful. Yeah, and I was like, wow, okay, well worth it. Now I can do other things that are much more interesting than copy-pasting this miserable report every week. <laughs> Yeah, exactly. I mean, this is this is this is in one sense the the er superpower of coding mm. is in automating, mm. is in taking something that was done slowly or inefficiently and letting it happen automatically, and that gets done, you know, by large corporations in ways that sometimes you know greatly benefit us and sometimes hamper us, but it can be done at small scale, uh, you know, you know, by yourself. I mean, I am. Um, I have a, I, I had one story I was doing where I had to download a massive number of photos off these different websites. And it was just this constant click, click, click. So I was like, okay, I'm, I'm certain I can write a quote unquote web scraper to do this for me. And it took like, you know, I don't know, an hour and a half, two hours, you know, and I got it working and it reduced, yeah, like three days of work to, you know, I don't know, I, I didn't measure it, but I'm sure it's in the milliseconds, basically. <laughs> that, that feels really good. That feels really good. Clive, it's been lovely to have you here. Thanks so much for coming on. Uh, a really interesting book, I think, both for people who are in the industry. I've certainly recommended it to uh, some of my coworkers, uh, and also people who are interested to learn what this particular enclave of people is like and what's going on inside our heads and why we are sometimes uh, a bit jerky when you <laughs> when you take our headphones off. <laughs> I won't interrupt you in the middle of work.
If you want to learn more about Clive Thompson, his writing, or his book, Coders, The Making of a New Tribe and the Remaking of the World, as usual, you can find links to click in the show notes for this episode, which you can find on our website, scienceforthepeople.ca. Science for the People is listener-supported. You can find us on Patreon, where you can support us with monthly donations in any amount. Your support keeps us afloat and able to keep making great new episodes, and we thank you for it. The show is produced by Rochelle Saunders and edited by Ryan Bromsgrove. We get help with special projects from K.O. Myers. Our theme song was written and recorded by Fractal Pattern, and its title is Binary Consequence. The show is hosted by Bethany Brookshire, Anika Hazra, Marion Kilgour, and me, Rochelle Saunders. 